Hey everybody, this is Volts for December 13th, 2021, discussing disinformation and media with Matt Sheffield. I'm your host, David Roberts. Matt Sheffield started his first conservative media website, bashing news anchor Dan Rather for liberal bias, way back in 2000, and in subsequent years became a key figure in right-wing media criticism. But the rise of Trump left him disillusioned, and he has since become a prominent critic of right-wing media. He now runs a site called Flux, dedicated to accurate, inclusive journalism. Last week, Matt and I got together on one of these live Twitter space things, a glorified conference call, basically, to which people can tune in and ask questions, and had a wide-ranging conversation about the disinformation crisis, how it manifests in climate change, and what can be done about it. The audio was archived, available exclusively to Flux and Volts subscribers. I hope you enjoy it. We're doing a space tonight to discuss climate change and the uh, the birth of the disinformation economy. And David has uh, been a longtime climate change correspondent and environmental columnist for a while. And he's also the proprietor and publisher, writer, etc. of Volt's uh, newsletter, which he started one year ago today, which he was just recounting that for our previous space, which I accidentally ended somehow. <laughs> so... So your experience overall has been pretty good, you were saying. And uh, I think I ended the space inadvertently right after you said you were you work better alone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I inadvertently proved your point, I think. <laughs> yes. This is why I don't talk to people. Uh, yeah, it's been going great. Uh, I have found that uh, readers are excited to go deeper and wonkier and uh, share my obsessions. Uh, and it's... I think, I mean, I'm sure different writers have different opinions about this, but I much prefer it over writing for a general interest publication. Uh-huh. And, and one of the things, and you wrote a retrospective uh, on your site today um, that uh, one of the things you said is that you appreciated not having to reintroduce topics over and over again in terms yes. of, you assume that your current readers actually know who you are and something about the material, I guess, right? Yes, it's the famed, uh, it's the famed return to blogging. It is a, a persistent audience who will follow me over time and thus who I don't, you know, I don't have to explain that climate change is bad in every post anymore. Yeah. And, um, I guess it's it's a way of trying to have a continued conversation rather than one that starts over de novo every time, right? Yes, and it's explicitly, I mean, I did it uh, knowing that I would be writing for a much smaller audience. It's, it's not a mass audience play. It's very much for a self-selecting group of people who are more than average interested in my subject matter. So I, th I think there's still... It can still have influence because I think the people who do read it are, you know, sprinkled throughout the world, the energy world in high places. But I've basically transitioned away from mass writing, I guess is what I'd say. Yeah. And uh, so now before you were doing um, just for those, again, who were, uh, hadn't 
seen what you were doing before you were yeah working at Vox, um, and then before that um, you were working at Grist, which is a website that's still out there doing climate coverage. Um, how how is it different now compared to the your your Grist days? Would you say? <laughs> oh goodness. Well, for one thing, I didn't know what the hell I was doing back in my Grist days. I was I was hired at Grist as an editorial assistant in I think like 2004, with no background in journalism and no real background in environmentalism, which is what Grist was supposedly about, and knowing nothing at all about climate change or anything really. So the 10 years I spent at Grist were, you know, in retrospect, is something I think journalists don't really get anymore these days, which was it was a place where I could labor in obscurity while I learned what the hell I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, that's a I think that's an interesting observation you make there, because that is one of the things that's definitely very different about media now is that, you know, so you and I are both Gen Xers um, <laughs> in our 40s. And, you know, in the in the old days, the media industry was very, you know, sort of anti young people uh, in terms of letting them have public facing work uh, to a large degree. <laughs> and, um, and so basically they had people work as research assistants or as publicists or, you know, something like that. Or, or, or come up through local papers that used to, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the way you came up through the reporting game is through local papers. And it's interesting. If you go through that route, you're taught a certain set of, skills and rules and norms, but I wasn't taught those at all. I had never had any experience in that world at all. So my, all I was reacting to and sort of shaping myself around was what do readers like, <laughs> you know, like what, what is helpful to readers? And if you just follow that string, you don't end up in the model of the inverted pyramid, you know, daily, you know, objective third voice, information is relevant. You know what I mean? There's no spine to your research. You don't know what you're looking for. So you just, and, and this is the sort of feeling I get from reading lots of objective news stories. It's just like, it's like a grab bag of facts. It's like a grab bag of true things. They're all true, but like, how do they hang together? What do they all mean? You know, like that's, that's what's missing. And once you approach it that way, like what is sort of my narrative here? What are the, what are, what kinds of things am I researching what kinds of arguments am I trying to make? That helps you know where to dig. And doing that over time informs you more fully, I think, than you get informed doing objective style reporting. Traditional training with journalism has also it made it to the point of the topic today about climate change and um, disinformation. Like it made them very basically totally unprepared to understand how a gaslighting campaign was being built right in front of their eyes. Um, they couldn't even see it happening. And, you know, you could argue that this was something that probably was first done by the tobacco industry, you know, in the, in the 1950s and 60s, when they did research that figured out that, you know, smoking causes cancer and how do we keep the public from knowing that? But basically that information Understanding how that happened and why it happened, it never really filtered down into elite journalism, I would say. And climate change was kind of the next area uh, where this well, it, it happens again and again. And it, it happens, you know, these these critiques of the flaws of, of this style of journalism are things people have been saying for decades now. Like I when I first started, 
in this whole game in the early 2000s. It was sort of the rise of the net roots and, you know, the sort of famous like, oh, the bastions of, of the mainstream media are being stormed by these outsiders, all this blah, blah, all this sort of utopian talk. But all these critiques of media that we're talking about here were around then the both sizing, the sort of um, fetishizing of moderate being whatever happens to be wherever the two is between where the two parties are. All this kind of stuff has been around so long now that I've come to find it very difficult to believe that the people involved don't understand these critiques or don't know what's happening. They get it yelled, if nothing else, every time they go out on Twitter that people yell it at them. So <laughs> they've definitely heard it. The thing is, you have to, you know, economists annoy me in a lot of ways. But one thing I sort of picked up from economists is it's helpful. One helpful lens on any situation is what is the incentive structure? What are people incentivized? What are people rewarded and punished for? And you can do that sort of brain dead both sides journalism forever and never. There's never a penalty. There's never a downside. Like you you might have people like me yelling at you on Twitter, but in the in the world of media professionals, that will never count against you. Whereas if you if you betray an opinion or even, you know, like we saw it during the Trump years, like sometimes journalists would get really worked up and they'd be like, I I think taking kids from their parents at the border when they're seeking asylum and holding them in cages without telling them where their parents are is bad. And, you know, the whole right would just jump on it. to would be like, oh, there's a biased anti-Trump reporter. And then, of course, that would cause the editors and everyone to retreat, duly retreat like they do every time. And just that cycle over and over again over time means as a professional reporter in D.C., as a professional politics reporter doing the brain dead objective, both sides, horse race, blah, 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 is without downsides. You can get ahead doing that. There's no risk to it. So unless they're sort of like gripped by a civic spirit or whatever, why would they stop? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And then the other, the sort of, uh, besides from what you're calling effectively market incentives, there is sort social, of a, social, social and reputational incentives too. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And the other thing is that, you know, just in terms of how being a journalist works in the, the print business, you know, for a long time, the, there was this term that people use that, you know, I have to I have to fill the news hole. Um, that was how they that was how they they thought about making their product. But I mean, it's such a in retrospect, when you when you think about that phrasing, it's just basically you're going to fill it with what by shoveling shit down the hole. <laughs> well, imagine imagine there being any space without news already in it <laughs> anymore. What show me a news hole in the universe? Yeah, no, that's fair. And yeah, like a lot of this stuff, though. Yeah, you're right that you know those critiques have always been there, and you know I'd say. They're still certainly relevant. I mean, just to, just yesterday, uh, Politico ran an, an article uh, in which they criticized Vice President Kamala Harris for being Bluetooth phobic. Yeah. Um, as in, because she was concerned that Bluetooth has some security risks um, as a wireless technology. Like, and which like we just live, it actually we, does. Let's the nonsense things about that. You could go on forever, but just one note, like, Note that the whole critique from people like us of the mainstream political media in 2006 can be boiled down to two words, her emails, right? They spent an absurd amount of time on that ridiculous 
non-story. And that has become shorthand for the whole critique of mainstream media. So for them to go after Kamala Harris for information security, specifically not for breaching it, but for being too concerned about it, it's hard to interpret that as anything but a deliberate fuck you to every media critic from of the last five years, right? I mean, it's not it's not just any shallow, stupid story. It's very specifically a shallow, stupid story that is the opposite they attacked the last woman for. Just as though to say, as though to flag, yes, hell yes, we're going to do this again. Hell yes, we are. Yeah, well, and it's even, and it's the opposite of, her behavior is the literal opposite of Trump. Because when Trump was the president, you know, he had a standard issue iPhone that he was tweeting on. And his Twitter account had, um, I think the password was was Make America Great Again. So he his Twitter account got hacked twice while he was the president. Um, I remember. I mean, there was the whole four years was among all the other things it was one long series of sort of horrendous information security stories, leaks and breaches and like emails being CC'd here and there and emails from illegal accounts. The, the yep. media didn't give a shit because they never gave a shit about info security. That's never what it was about. It was always retrofit from the narrative they wanted to tell. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think the other thing is that there's this sort of desperate, wrote idea of making you know our job is to hold public officials accountable and so like they think if if that's like obviously that is a journalist's job but on the other hand you know that shouldn't be the number one principle because otherwise you just end up with these ridiculous stories so in other words you know like the 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 harris bluetooth story basically our vice president is taking security is taking too much security uh, like what that makes no sense in any possible world, except under the rubric of, well, our job is to criticize public officials. Well, um, this is, it, this is what yeah. accountability has become, right? This is, it, it's shrunk to this ridiculous sort of brain dead version of itself where these reporters just feel like I need to write negative stories about the administration. That's what tough journalism is. That's what real journalism is, is just negative stories. And notice, if you're not allowed to have any opinions about policy or about whether it's good to jail children or about morality or about anything, you're not allowed to make any moral or ethical judgments. That means you can't hold a president or vice president responsible in those terms, right? So the, the only terms you have to, quote unquote, hold them responsible are just these sort of shallow, like yesterday you said one thing and today you said something that sounds slightly different or like, Oh, in the campaign, you said you were going to unite people, but oh, look, people are still fighting. Just the most sort of goofy, brain-dead versions of accountability you could imagine. To truly hold the president accountable means you got to care about something and understand something and desire one outcome over another. You know what I mean? Like, And they're just not allowed to do any of that. So, so what there is of accountability ends up just being these sort of shallow, gotcha, gimmicky stories. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and that it's, you know, it is a very big contributor to how we got to this present situation where you have, you know, one party that has basically decided that, you know, we're going to, if we lose elections, then we will end uh, democracy. Uh, that's our that's our belief now. 
you know, and, and, and if if moderation is simply splitting the difference between the two parties, well, then I guess that means ending democracy isn't good. But, you know, maybe just trimming it around the edges and curtailing it is OK. Democrats say some Democrats say uh, that democracy is good. You know, other critics, critics argue otherwise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, this is, I mean, the, what, what I've seen happen is, and this, you know, we saw this forecast a long time ago in the climate change space, is the thinking is basically, what is good for us, our tribe, which is white, Christian, rural, and ex-urban conservatives, basically, is the, the, the Republican Party has become quite, you know, uh, uh, monolithic in that respect. So what's good for our tribe? That determines not only what's politically good, that determines what's true, you know, so, so everything else becomes subordinate to that, including facts, including democracy, including truth. Everything has become subordinate to what are these in the immediate interests of our tribe. That's what I think you see reaching its sort of absurd, <laughs> you know, reductio ad absurdum uh, uh, results before us now is Right-wing media is just what is true is what is good for us. So what is good for us, that's what we're going to write. Like the, 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 the whole notion of any metric of truth or even any conception of truth that transcends tribe, that transcends partisanship, has just completely fallen out of the, out of the picture. Now it's just like, what do we need to believe? That is what we shall believe. It's, it's frictionless. And as somebody who who worked in those uh, in that world for a number of years, I mean, you know, they have this all all Republican operatives pretty much have this idea that everything is debatable. Everything is subject to opinion um, is just a matter of opinion. And so, you know, when I was working at newsbusters and places like that, you know, the demand that that we made to journalists was, well, you have to quote what the Republicans said about a thing. Um, And it didn't matter. And and then also not specify whether what Republicans said was true or correct or not. Mm -hmm. You know, and and then at the same time, and one of the things that sort of began my disaffection with right-wing politics was that, you know, while I was fine making that demand, um, I also you know, of, of people who, who were claiming to have no views or no opinions, I also felt like that, well, conservatives ought to try to have a mainstream media that reports things fairly and reports progressive opinions as well. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, and, that's what Tucker wanted to do when he first started. Remember, he gave that whole speech. That was his original purpose, was it not? Oh, it was. Yeah. And actually, I haven't mentioned this publicly, but I actually uh, was some I actually interviewed to be he wanted me to be the managing editor, the first managing editor. Well, you're lucky you didn't go on, I guess, because those original intentions got nuked upon upon first contact with the audience. Yeah, well, no. And that is well. And that's basically what happened with him. Yeah, is that, you know, they he tried doing some reporting on negative reporting about Republicans and. Uh, and basically, Republican uh, right, American right wing epistemology is such that the only thing you can criti- if you're a Republican, the only thing you can criticize another Republican for is not being right wing enough. Oh, yeah. That's it. Every other criticism is unfair and illegitimate. 
And it's, yes, but over time, this is what happened. Over time, it went from being unfair to therefore it is false, right? It used to, you could say it's unfair, and then you could actually like go out and do some investigation and try to determine separately whether it's false. But nowadays, it's just that's bad for us, therefore it's bullshit. There's no middle step where they're like, oh, should we go find out? It's just what they need to believe is what's true. Yeah. And it did manifest in regard to the to the climate dis- debate, because um, if you look at public opinion polls uh, before the oil and gas industry began trying to manipulate public opinion through ideological groups and PR firms, Republicans actually were more concerned about protecting the environment than Democrats were, believed or not. And well, we're, we're, we're talking about the media. Science in general is very, you know, science in general is very widely trusted, especially used to be <laughs> very widely trusted in the U.S. And environmentalism used to be a relatively bipartisan thing. They had to deliberately code it partisan. It was it did not enter that way. You know, it's not intrinsically that way. Oh, definitely. And um I mean, like Theodore Roosevelt, for instance, a Republican president, you know, was the guy who created the national park system. And, you know, so that was a that was a very big tradition um, in in even in conservatism um, and certainly within the Republican Party. And so, like, actually, weirdly enough, some of the right wing anti-immigration groups actually grew out of conservative environmentalism uh, because people people were concerned. That they were that they was they were going to be overpopulating the United States. Immigrants were, and so we needed to keep them out. Oh, yeah, um, I mean, one thing I'll give one thing I give Republicans credit for, even like Inhofe, early on, I think on some level, on some sort of brainstem level, conservatives like Inhofe appreciated the implications of climate change more fully than climate advocates did like i think he recognized pretty early on oh this isn't going to be like traditional environmentalism this is not a traditional conservation issue if this is real if this is true then this means revolution the facts here carry you to radicalism if you if you accept these facts you are carried inexorably to radicalism so you have to refuse the facts i think Inhofe uh, was was smarter in recognizing the end of that road than a lot of, you know, sort of quote unquote moderates like McCain. Mm. That's an, an interesting observation. I think, yeah, they uh, he realized that there were a lot of implications that for industry and, you know, in Oklahoma being a, a big oil producing state. Um, yeah, he realized what that would mean. And um, I acted mean, cold, accordingly. Cold. Pull, pull the string any direction you want. It means fossil fuel um, businesses and, and centers of the economy will be diminished and reduced in power. It means the whole world will have to cooperate. If you want to solve it, it means you need stronger international agreements and maybe even some kind of international governance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just it leads away from nationalism and parochialism toward something like humanity's got together get together and cooperate as one like it, it's a and that's a very basic brainstem difference between conservatives and, and other people and i just think inhofe 
got wind of that early on. Like the smarter, like the people who paid more attention to climate change on the right were the ones, I think, to turn it against it most sort of vigorously because they, I think, were smarter about where it would lead. And to that end, I guess early, relatively early on in in some of the the right wing pushback against, you know, understanding climate science and acting in response to it, there was this this uh, scandal that it seems very quaint now uh, that they cooked up a, a fake scandal that they called Climate Gate. Uh, <laughs> can you re- review what that was for people who weren't paying attention or don't remember that? Yeah, it's funny because there's a much more recent model that's very similar that will be fresh in people's heads. So basically, somebody we never, I don't think, ever found out exactly who, though one just has to assume it was some sort of right-wing operator of some kind, stole a bunch of of emails from the scientists who work at the uh, Tyndall Center, I think it was, or I forget, some center of climate research. I think it was the Tyndall Center for Climate Research. And, you know, they stole thousands of thousands in the UK, right? Thousands and thousands of thousands of emails basically scoured through those emails to find not just points, but to find like individual sentences and phrases that could, if you lift them out of context and give them a sinister interpretation, could make it look like the scientists were up to something shady. And so it was a very, you're right, it's sort of like it was a template for many, many, many right-wing faux scandals to come in that the right-wing media did a blitz on it, questions raised, you know, doubts, like this phrase, what, is it, what do they mean by this trick? What do they mean they're going to run a trick on the data? And, you know, the right-wing blitzed media blitzed it enough that the mainstream media had to sort of pick it up, you know, like, oh, everybody's talking about it now. We have to, you have to talk about this thing if everybody's talking about it. And so the mainstream media did it sort of scientists involved say this is all a bunch of horseshit, uh, uh, you know, but critics say blah, blah, blah. And then eventually after the story had passed from the mainstream media and most people had forgotten about it, all the inquiries and investigations that were set up to put it to rest. And I think in the end, there were something like seven or eight separate <laughs> inquiries all found that it was bullshit, all found that it was nothing, all found that you just get any database of thousands of emails and scour through it and you can find something that you can twist to look bad. But there was well, no... Yeah and, yeah, and just to reference what what the supposed malfeasance was, it was basically they were accusing people of having manipulated data yeah. um, yeah. and climate, climate records and temperature data, basically. But as you said, yeah. And and this is important to emphasize because I think it also says something about right-wing scandals lately. It's not that there was a germ or a seed of wrongdoing that they found that they then blew up or enhanced or exaggerated. There was no seed. There was nothing there. The whole thing was spun up like cotton candy out of nothing. And that's sort of like it demonstrated at the time. It demonstrated that they could do that. They're like, oh, we don't need to wait for a real scandal. We can just spin one up out of nothing anytime we want to. And that's, you know, they've done it over and over and over again. 
ever since they did the same thing with the Democrats emails, you know, and then when whatever Russian hacker in his bedroom uh, stole all the DNC emails, it's the same thing. You go through thousands of emails, you're going to find stuff you can spin to look bad. And by the time investigators or fact checkers or whoever the hell show up, everybody's moved on and it, and it goes down forever like climate gate is gospel on the right it's in it's it is in their holy books forever they will never like the truth of all of that will never reach the right wing base and the middle doesn't care about it so it's like only only the people who care on the left are ever gonna even know that it was all bullshit well and then of course that same playbook is being replayed right now with critical race theory and that's why it's important to, you know, for people who are journalists, uh, mainstream journalists to understand that you exist in a hostile environment um, and one in which, you know, your product is being attacked and you are being subjected to a manipulation campaign. And they don't even now seem to understand that, you know, because you're right that basically the goal of these strategies is to use biased right-wing media to create a story out of nothing um, or, you know, very little, and uh, then whip it up into such a fever pitch that mainstream journalists feel like they have to talk about it because, well, uh, Republican elected officials are talking about it, so therefore we have to talk about it. Um, And then they do, but they never put it in the correct context, which is, this is a public relations strategy. And yeah. designed to yeah. manipulate the public. They never do that. And there's a very strong bias, um, um, human cognitive bias that is sort of summarized by where there's smoke, there's fire. We have a very, very strong bias to thinking if everyone's talking about this, there must be something there. We have trouble not thinking that way, even on the left, even after we've seen one after the other, after the other, after the other of these bullshit Things come up even after we've seen QAnon and we've seen like, um, you know, whatever, when Obama was going to launch a military assault from Texas. What was that one? Or the Operation Jade Helm, I believe. Uh, Jade Helm, uh, you know, Sharia law. You see them over and over again. But even now, just there's some part of your mind when you see a bunch of different stories on a subject, you almost can't help thinking there's something there. That's how they sort of that's how they manage to associate Hillary Clinton with every human flaw, even diametrically opposed flaws. Because if you just do it enough, even people who have no sort of primary opinion on the matter will just sort of absorb by osmosis. Oh, I wouldn't be reading that she's shrill this often if there was something to that or that she's weak or, or that she's tyrannical. You know, she's she must be all the things like people don't have a coherent rational view of these things in their head. They just absorb ambiently from the media. What's everybody talking about? And this is what right-wing media hacked. And what, then what they realize is now that the, 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 the sort of grip of the gatekeepers is broken, right? There's no more scarcity in news. There's no more scarcity in information. So there's nobody gatekeeping anymore. Anything can make it into the public realm. And thus, if you want to create smoke and give people the suggestion that there's fire somewhere, you can do it just at will, right? You don't need you don't need anything to build on. Like, and they just do it over and over again. And this is what I think the media denies its responsibility for and culpability for, and just its involvement in. It's like even if your story 
on subject X is totally factual just by putting another story about subject X out there. You are in some way or another telling your news audience that it is significant, more significant than other things that receive less coverage. You know, you're contributing to the sort of atmosphere, the ambient atmosphere of information. And that alone is expressing a judgment. Yeah. And, and in, a, in a lot of ways, I think you could argue that we're kind of in a modern day reincarnation of the time of the the era of yellow journalism. Uh, and you know like it's it's weird how like when people are learning about that in history or they're discussing it in some journalistic context today that people are like oh i can't believe they were so dumb uh you know it fell for all these ridiculous stories uh but that's literally what's happening today so and just for those uh just to review it for those not familiar with that idea the you know, the, in the the beginnings of of mass print publications, so mass print newspapers um, in the late nineteenth century, you had this proliferation of of newspapers, and anybody with a you know somewhat large enough an amount of money could start one, and so you had pretty much every local political party had a newspaper, and you had lots of local vanity newspapers as well of eccentric crank millionaires. Um, and they were just churning out whatever the fuck they wanted. And it was it was this environment where, yeah, every, there were no holds barred in terms of information, in terms of what you could say. And uh, newspapers would routinely make up stuff and insert it into their copy. People, uh, just, will, believe, people will believe anything. Like we're, It's not sort of like, I think, polite to say this in these conversations, but like your average schmo is just not going to go into media consumption with all these defenses up and sort of scrutinizing everything and double checking everything. That's just not how people work. People will believe what they're told basically from trusted sources and they'll trust the wrong people. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to sort of a pod about McCarthy and the Red Scare, and it was really interesting to me because that got going through what we would now think of as right-wing media, sort of pamphlets and, and, and obscure sort of crank radio shows and stuff like that. And, was, and, and that fanned the flames and that sort of pushed it into the mainstream. And, it, you know, as, as we all know, it went incredibly far and hurt a lot of people's lives. But in the end, it was still possible for the mainstream gatekeepers to say, have you, no, have you left, sir, no sense of decency? And to shut the thing down, politicians and mainstream media outlets could basically agree to say, this is too far, we're shutting this down. And that's how it came to an end. And today, I ask you, like, if there was a comparable Red Scare, there's no one who has the power anymore to shut it down. You could prove the charges wrong to any sort of empirical standard you wanted. You could get accurate information out there all you wanted. But you just can't stop anything anymore. There's no way to stop half the media universe from just churning it forever if they want to. So I think we're going to see if we get Republican control of government again and Trump in office again. We're going to see something like that. And there will be no trusted institutions left that can step in and say enough's enough. There's no Walter Cronkite anymore who can step in and say Vietnam's gone on long enough, like, and, and crystallize the change in public opinion. There's no trusted institutions or people that are trusted across borders or across barriers anymore. So 
something like the Red Scare today. I just think there'd be zero check on it. There would just be no way to ever stop it. It could go on forever. It would be, you know, yeah, probably the the Antifa scare. Um, well, yeah, arguably, it never point. stopped in a in a sense. <laughs> Couldn't you yeah. say? Well, they never yeah. they never gave it up, right? They it, never it sort of they, never stopped. They never yeah. dropped anything. They never dropped anything. But they could be. But there was a time they could be held to the periphery somewhat, or at least banished back to the periphery somewhat. Yeah, there was think, still a mainstream. Yeah. Yeah, I think unfortunately, I'm sorry, I've not introduced myself to anyone, but I'm Anna Tarkov. I'm um, I'm an associate editor at Flux, so uh, it, it's uh, you can't, yeah, you can't. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us. By the way, I'm sorry I wasn't here earlier. Uh, they can't put that genie back in the bottle, as you say. We have to think uh, forward about ways that we can, um, you know, mitigate these types of things. And we've had actually, uh, we've had a lot of. We've had people that have written things for our site and we've hosted other types of spaces like this where we're, we are trying to wrestle with this problem as are, of course, many other of our colleagues and other people who are concerned about these types of things. And yeah, there are, I don't, sadly, no easy answers, but I know that um, we often have talked about that, you know, there has to be, that, that maybe there could be some broad teaching of critical thinking somehow that a lot of people do come back to that type of thing um you know as a I, i'm so against i i think that's so wrong if we could i, I don't know if you want to have this have this out <clears throat> sure. here, but I, I just think that's the wrong direction to look you're never going to create a society filled with <laughs> r- rational uh, people who assess you know, with all these good cognitive habits, like it's very, very, very difficult to do that, even for yourself, even to be that way for yourself. When you make a conscious effort, conscious, you know, constantly, it's like never going to be that you can't look to the individual, I guess, is what I would say. This is a social phenomenon. To me, all the questions about truth are downstream of questions about trust. This is all about social trust. The great mass of people have never been scientific thinkers or rational or gone around gathering evidence and weighing the evidence before they draw their conclusions. Most people, most of the time, then and now, just believe what the people and institutions they trust. Yeah, we need need trustworthy institutions. I do agree with you. I think that the. You know, we we need actually, you know, I would say a multifaceted approach, you know, ideally. And I think that where I uh, where I agree with you 100 percent in in a way, I also uh, come back to thinking, you know, that we're not going to get back to a Walter Cronkite reality right ever. So we have to people have to. Of course, we're not going to turn everybody into a critical thinker and everybody into a brilliant parser of information and uh, or even the majority of people. That is impossible. I 100 percent agree with you. I think that what we can do, though, is in the people that are concerned about these matters as the minority, though they may be, um, that if you can have people learn and exercise these skills, uh, they can have influence on other people who are not, uh, you know, uh, brilliant critical thinkers or, or are able to, you know, I mean, I don't know if that can scale. But on a personal level, I've seen this work um, in terms of, you know, personal relationships. I'm a person who is, you know, I'd like to believe a good critical thinker, etc. And I can affect people in my life um, and people I come in contact with. And if we can have 
a, you know, again, it's, it's a multifaceted approach that we have to take. One of the problems, of course, is the vast ecosystem of media and other types of actors who are committed to disinformation for various ends. That is a whole other area that right. we have to deal I mean, with. If you, if, you, if you look at the research on, like, if you look at the research on, like, conspiracy theorists, like Q types, cult members, what you find over and over again from this research, from, dis, from the disinformation research is, it's super, super hard once someone has been sort of led down this path to get them back. Like it's high touch, super like emotionally intensive. It's a real one-on-one -on -one thing. And the best, the, really the, the best you can do is, is cut off the supply. It's always a supply issue. There's a lot of poison that once it's out there is just going to do a shitload of damage no matter how much you're trying to inoculate people against it. There's got to be some supply. <laughs> There's got to be some control over supply. And that's yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. That gets yeah, to the complicated yeah. question. Like, who do we trust to, to be that? And it's like they don't, tr you know, the, the, the right wing media spent decades very deliberately attempting. Like, I remember Rush Limbaugh saying this back in the um, you know early 2000s. He's like academia, journalism, politics, and I forget what the fourth one was. These are the four pillars of deception, which basically means all the institutions are taken over by liberals and you can only trust us. And they've been saying that over and over for 40 or 50 years now. So the question is, what institution gets to play the gatekeeper role anymore? Like we don't trust mainstream media. We don't trust science anymore. We're going to trust like we're trying to get Facebook to do it. You know, we're trying to like browbeat Facebook and Twitter into doing it. But we do we really want them to be the hand on the supply uh, uh, side? You know what I mean? We, so there's just no way around the problem of trust. You have to have social trust if you want to have a shared reality that you're all inhabiting. No, you're right. And I think um, I mean, uh, one of the big issues is religion in regards to fundamentalism. You know, we've we've talked about several instances of right wing propaganda operations, such as uh, lying about smoking or lying about the Iraq War, the first one. I'm oh, sorry, uh, George W. Bush's uh, Iraq War and climate change. But you could, I think, if you go back even further, you could say that trying to cast doubt on belief in human evolution—that you know, creationism is the original alternative fact—and so because of that. Um, you know, you've got this idea that uh, a, a lot of people who are Christian fundamentalists in America, they feel like that they they know deep down that, you know, the Bible, they believe the Bible is literally 100% true, but they know that that's not provable. And they know that, in fact, there are a lot of things that disprove their ideas. And so it puts them in, in, in a 100% uh, tension with everyone else. And yes, but also who 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 is convincing within that world? Like who, you know, if you got two guys telling you that Jesus spoke to them and told them to start a church and you should join it, which one are you going to believe? You're going to believe the one who's most charismatic. Like at all, that's what the sort of coin of the realm is in fundamentalism is charisma because there is, like you say, there are no empirical, <laughs> you know, there's, sort of the, and there's no outside empirical standards you can use. So it all comes down to charisma. And you see this now basically on right-wing media and in right-wing what's left, I guess, of right-wing intellectual circles is it's just performance. It's just who's a good performer. That's what like Ben Shapiro is, is like 
he he performs argument. You, you know what I mean? Or like performs investigation more than he actually does it. It's all who's most charismatic. I, I, I was thinking about that when I was listening to this podcast about Mars Hill, the Mars Hill Church. It's a super charismatic guy started it and ended up, you know, being an abusive dick. And I was like, well, that's like, who do you think are the charismatic people who talk loud and a lot and draw a lot of attention to themselves? Like, those are scam artists. That's why there's so many scam artists on the right constantly. Well, and and that's why I do think that, you know, uh, progressive Christians actually are going to be integral to, you know, overcoming some of this disinformation because, you know, progressive Christianity in the beginning of the 20th century and some even in the, the uh, 19th century at the end figured out that, you know, well, the Bible doesn't appear to be literally true. Uh, it appears that there are multiple gods that were in the Hebrew Bible that were squished together and created a single one, uh, and that God had a wife, uh, and that, you know, these gods were members of a pantheon. So, like, that's something, and they basically said, well, okay, it's that means it's not literally true, but that doesn't mean we have to not believe in God anymore. It just means that this is a book that was created by flawed humans, and we can still, you know, get things that we agree with out of it and there's nothing wrong with believing in you know some of the ideas and not and rejecting ones that we don't like and so that's a a much healthier epistemology and and it's one that judaism had come by a lot earlier than christianity had and so you know i that's going to be a big part of of helping people overcome some of their intellectual you know, nihilism. I mean, these are certain kinds of people. Who, these are kinds of people who want this certainty and want this lack of ambiguity. That's that's what they're after. How do you convince them to to be more cognitively flexible when the reason they came to fundamentalist Christian theology in the first place is that it's easy, very simple, easy answers and a hierarchy that puts them on the top? Like, why yeah. would they? You know, like that's what they want. Yeah, well, no, that's true. The the certitude is is very uh, comforting for people who who want that. And you know, I think, I mean, ultimately, there's probably always going to be people who have that psychological need for certitude. Um, and you know, but overall, though, for people who don't have that need, there has to be a better awareness of standing up for uncertainty, for standing up for pluralism, and understanding that these are things that that they don't exist by themselves, that people had to fight for them, and that yeah. you, you have to fight for them. Um, these are not things that exist. Because, again, the, the story of, of humanity over and over and societies over, over and over is that the rule of the strong oppressing those who cannot resist them. Like, that's the, the human story over and over. Uh, and so having having pluralism, having you know, markets of some kind. These are all creations, artificial creations of governance and of democracy. And so you can have your beefs with it, but ultimately they're, the other systems just don't work as well. But well, you have to fight although, for what you have. Although I would say, and this harkens back to something I said earlier about Inhofe sniffing out the implications of climate change before other people, I sort of think it's a little bit similar with empiricism and it's a little bit similar with capitalism like if you if you really let capitalism run it is utterly destructive 
to local cultures. Like it, it famously sort of uh, standardizes everything, and you know, wipes out it, and 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 workers move, and it breaks up these communities. Like this is something I think you're seeing. You know, like Rubio and Holly get a little get a little sort of hint at these days. Like unrestrained capitalism is totally toxic to any parochial culture. And it's true also of, of empiricism. Like if you follow that string, any parochial belief or superstition you have is going to eventually go down. So so I can understand why some people are just like, no, I'm not going to take step one. I'm actually not, I'm not going to take step one down that road because I see where it goes. There is perhaps some positive though in in that in terms of focusing on educational initiatives that if you look at younger republicans in office um at the national level like obviously a lot of them are pro QAnon and whatnot but there actually are some of them like matt gates even who actually believe that uh climate change is real believe it or not um and like they have their ideas of how to respond to that don't necessarily make sense but they are different and this is something that you know more conventional um, older republicans regard them with suspicion because of that um i don't know if you've ever seen gates talk about climate change at all have you have you yes i've seen i've been you know i've been keenly following this sort of nascent uh <laughs> this nascent republican attempt to claim to have an answer to climate change, uh, but for, for, like from what I can tell, Gates's um, thinking and the thinking of that whole caucus is almost purely one hundred percent political. I.e., it's not good for Republicans anymore for the division to be. Democrats want to do something about this, and Republicans don't. That has come to be viewed unfavorably. So they need to. Pull it yet another scam on the mainstream media. They need to offer up something that looks like an other side so that they can change the story from Dems want to do something Republicans don't to Dems and Republicans disagree on exactly what should be done about climate change, which is the kind of story that they can ride forever. Like they can delay climate action forever under cover of that story. Like pure denialism has come to be kind of a PR disaster, but the two sides story, as they're well aware, you can get away with that infinitely. Yeah. Well, is that yeah. progress, though, do you think? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I almost think I go back and forth on this, but I almost I almost would have told you 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, I was saying this a long time ago that like denialism is stupid. They caught the denialism tiger by the tail and like suffered for it. They should have pivoted to bullshit faux solutions a long time ago because that would have served to you know like it's only they only became the bad guy in this debate because of the denialism if they could have just smoothed it out with both sides nonsense from a much earlier point they could have gotten away with delaying substantial action forever without as much political flack i think this was always the smart pivot on their point they should have done it a long time ago i don't know if it's progress because once again, like what media that people read or see on cable news is going to tell the American people these solutions that they are putting forward are horseshit. They will not do anything and they will not solve the problem. This is not a good faith policy proposal. Who will say that? That's the truth. But who will 
say that such that any of the sort of casually interested Americans will ever hear that. That's the sort of thing that we need people to say on these cable news shows and whatnot, where they, you know, routinely create these false equivalences or, you know, set up these panels. And, you know, and a lot of times the, the guests may not even know very much about the topic that they're being asked to talk about. And so I, I've seen many times where you have, you know, some far right activist who's, you know, got a total, you know, a, a complete set of answers it just that are are you know they're not they don't make sense logically or with the facts, but they at least are short enough to be able to fit into the sound bites. And these debate segments they're not they're not accomplishing anything. And in fact, I'd, I'd say they're they're harmful. Uh, I would well, say. get back to the performance as I was saying earlier. Like who wins those is who's the most sort of charismatic uh, shouter. And so that whole you know to get back to incentives, that whole ecosystem, the incentives in that genre are for bullshitters uh yeah well and um but then i get and then i guess on the other the other sort of unfortunate dynamic is that you know if you look at the and i stopped watching them a long time ago but the political sunday morning shows oh um, where they've got this this fetish for tr this obsession with trying to find the reasonable republican um yes and, um and and so like you know they they're continually putting Chris Christie on the air, or they've been trying to turn uh, Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas into that oh, uh, lately. But but they don't know how to talk to them, um, and so you know while they might be you know not a raving anti-vax lunatic, uh, they're perfectly willing to enable the raving anti-vax lunatics. And these people like Chuck Todd and these other hosts. They have no idea how to how to speak to them. Um, they they seem to think that the only, their only mechanism is seemingly uh, trying to attack people for hypocrisy, uh, and that's it. Or you know, yeah, or trying to it. get people that's to say, good. yeah, or trying to get you know, just asking the same dumb question. Well, was the election stolen? Uh, <laughs> like, when are they? What what do you gain by asking that question every time? Like, if they're if you know what they're going to say then don't invite them on the program because you are not going to persuade them of anything. The only thing that should be asked is what would it, you know, like this wasn't enough, this wasn't enough, this wasn't enough. What would be enough for Trump and his base to do? Is there something they could do that you would decry or, or denounce? Just in theory, let's set, let's try to set a, a bar beforehand this time right let's set a few like markers in the sand beforehand this time so that when all these collaborators travel past them at least they're on record saying they wouldn't yeah well, like asking them like instead of asking about 2020 you should ask them are you you know, going what is overriding the votes of a state wrong yeah. yes having a state legislator override the vote of uh, of the, the voters wrong that's what they need to be asking them. Yes, if you or if you're a member of the House of Representatives, would you vote to take the decision out of the hands of a of a state and and just give the electors to Trump? Which, of course, the House of Representatives absolutely can lawfully do, and we have every reason to expect will do in 2024. Yeah, and then you know at the, at the same time, while they could do better in terms of how they you know, speak to 
far right people or and their enablers, you know, the press hasn't really communicated the urgency of the upcoming 2022 and 2024 elections. So like if you look at uh, and, and that was a huge thing with the, this whole uh, critical race theory uh, panic is that just like the, the climate gate emails or just like the Hillary Clinton emails um, that it was designed, they're, they're designed to sort of make everyone throw make everyone else throw their hands up and just be disgusted uh, or confused and then also rev up the raving lunatic base. Um, and so if you look at polling of, of, you know, democratic voters and independents or moderates, like they're, they're very disengaged right now. And, and that's by design on the part of the radical right. I, I keep reading about the Republicans looking for more youngkins, right? This sort of like how to be a, Trump. Yes. How to be a Trump in the sheets, but then, you know, a sort of a, a moderate in the, in the streets. But the problem, <laughs> is, that, the problem is that takes like, and, and, and I guarantee you, here's a prediction. The next youngkin, whoever it is, part of how they will attempt to signal their moderation to the middle, to the media, will be to say reasonable sounding things about cl- climate. That will be one of the sort of flags that they can wave at the, at the, at the middle while winking at the base. The next youngkin will be, will, will be quote unquote good on climate. That's my prediction. Yeah, and I think that it's important to note that not only is does it not fill me with hope that people like uh, Mad Gates uh, believe the climate change is real, um, and I think the reason for that is very important to remember that there are quite organized worldwide extreme right fascist movement, and we are going to have uh, and already are having climate refugees from the global south, and I think that. Uh, believing, you know, there. I read this article once where it was like, "What happens when the right starts to believe in climate change?" And oh, yeah. a lot of the it's things be could ugly. be quite bad. It's going to be super, super ugly, and that's coming soon, too. Yeah. I don't think that's very far away. I mean, if you think about it, if you try to put yourself in the mind of a reactionary, and you find out that there's this global problem, the way to solve it is either to sort of cooperate with people across the world in a sort of global governance where you make present day sacrifices for future generations, which doesn't sound like them, or you could just build walls, pull up your borders, hoard the remaining oil and natural gas under the ground and try to basically lifeboat, lifeboat it. And and that, that will be the conservative response to climate change. It will be uh, what they call eco-fascism. It'll be border restrictions and um, it will be um, marginalized communities being forced to, again, pay the price. For- exactly. Exactly. There's a, uh, there's a book, oh, what is it called? Tropic of Chaos. Um, I have not read it yet, yeah. but it was recommended. It. Yeah, it was recommended to me by um, a journalist friend who, you know, said that this is already, we're seeing this type of thing across the world already where there are all these you know, opportunists who are uh, taking advantage of already these, you know, again, disadvantaged and mostly communities of color uh, all across the world. And um, it's only going to get worse, as you say. And it's uh, and already again, we are seeing that already in the U.S. Like it's not it's not a, a, an accident that that we've already had this type of rhetoric uh, about walls and locking countries down to immigration and that sort of thing. Well, and look, at COVID. I mean, look, look how COVID played out, too. It's a perfect 
perfect exactly. test case. If you look, if you if you are just assessing COVID logically, empirically, you immediately come to the need for communal activity, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to act together. You have to make sacrifices for one another. Like you have to act with solidarity. That's the only way to solve it. But is that how people reacted? Like, was that people's natural instinctive reaction? Basically, when people, people. Get stressed, <laughs> when people get stressed out and uncertain and anxious, they don't get more progressive. That does not make them want to like, uh, that doesn't make them into cosmopolitans. The more stressed and anxious and uncertain and frightened people get, the more small C conservative they get and the more open they are to those kind of arguments that's that's what i that's what i fear yeah i mean well, it, now, it has gone both ways i would say you know where of course i i'd say definitely much more on the side of the people who are as you were talking about but um there has been there was a moment i don't know if we're past it i really hope we're not past it but um in the spaces i'm in and i i mean i know a lot of organizers and a lot of people who are you know really on the front lines of working for various types of social change including climate change and i think that you know, we have seen the other uh, side of the coin, so to speak, where people have pulled together in some in, in a lot of places. There have been all these like a flourishing at one point of mutual aid efforts and all these types mm-hmm. of things um, and and that sort of thing. Unfortunately, it's an open question whether it's going to persist or not. As you as as we've been saying, there's a lot of people are very uh, apathetic right now in a lot, you know, especially people who are, mm-hmm. you know, mo- more moderate or more, you know, or less politically engaged, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so it, it's, and, and um, I want to just, again, to bring in something you were saying before too, about how unfortunately the march of capitalism that must ever continue is a big hindrance to all of this because people who are, I have a friend who, um, calls it uh, shit life syndrome <laughs> is her term for people who because in our society you have if you're is so hard for many people that they can't you know that it's so hard for them just to make it to put food on the table to have a roof over their heads to pay for things that you don't have time to participate fully in democracy uh, mm-hmm. and you have no inclination to do so uh, when you are trying to figure out how you're going to pay your rent or etc and right and if politics does nothing for you you're much more likely right. to when someone comes along and says, hey, fuck all these people, I'm going to blow it up. You're like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, that sounds good. And I don't does trust nothing, does nothing for me because why would I? They've never yeah, done well, anything for me and they've not helped me. Michael Moore in 2016, you know, he predicted that Donald Trump mm-hmm. was going to win uh, on the idea that, you know, a lot of people just feel like they have no control over their lives and uh, they just want to blow the system up. Well, that's one of the many frustrating self-reinforcing cycles that it's so easy for conservatives to launch, right? Like they can make you feel anxious and then you become more conservative and then they pass crappy policy that makes you even more anxious. Like it seems like everything they start work ends up working to their favor. And it's so difficult to start the opposite kind of it's so difficult to start a self-reinforcing positive cycle where people build on something together and it's reaffirmed and they benefit from it. And so they have more trust. And so they build more together. It's very hard to get that kind of thing going, especially when you have basically half the media and one half of your entire society trying its best to make everyone feel shitty and anxious. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I think I think that there's a lot of at least I see some possible promise or uh, 
a good idea in the sense of the people, there are people that talk about, for example, you know, everyone has like a different lens that they view a lot of these issues from a lot where people, of course, will look at multiple uh, viewpoints, but a lot of time people have uh, one that they focus in on more than others, depending on the person, the commentator, the journalist, whoever. And um, I do think that there's a lot of validity to the types of people that say that one of the ways to get out of a lot of these problems is that we need to have a culture of accountability for people in positions of power, which we yeah. have not had for I, I don't know how long. I mean, that is the, the that is the central characteristic of American public life from the time I have been old enough to be aware of it is shitty people doing shitty things and facing zero accountability. Mm -hmm. I mean, over and over and over and over and over again. I can't imagine like people born after me, younger people have never, literally never seen anything but that in American public life of just like the shittier you are, the more you benefit, the, right. the more you get ahead. And that's just incredibly toxic for trust. Like I said, yeah. for social trust. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the troublesome thing is, is that not only do some people respond to that with, you know, of course, apathy, as we've said, uh, they, they look around and they say, well, there's no, nobody faces consequences. There's nothing I can do. Uh, certainly my vote doesn't count as much as uh, uh, someone who can hire wealthy lobbyists, etc. Why bother? Which, you know, I can understand how people uh, can get to that point uh, very easily. And then the other thing is that there are people who then uh, they want to, they, they valorize and want to emulate these types of people because well, it seems be great, team, right? right? Being they able want to, to do what team, you want with no consequences, here. getting rich, etc. But yeah, well, and, and, and what else is whiteness but the promise to middle and lower class people that they can get a little taste of that, a little taste of what it's like to be on top and to not be accountable and to be able to do whatever you want and no one can stop you. Whiteness exactly. is just like a, a you can have this version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's right. And that's why people hold on to that above, you know, people are always so mystified why these people are voting against their economic self-interest. Well, it's not that hard to figure out, really. Yeah. Well, and then also they they have other interests as well. So, like, True. if your interest is uh, if you feel like you can never exist in the market, you just resolve that. Well, yeah, I'll just always be at whatever my current job is or um then you you can seek different incentives. So maintaining, you know, uh, white supremacy or Christian supremacy, like those can become things that are valuable to you and well, provide a, a psychic fulfillment. The thing about the reactionary mind is based in hierarchy. Everything's about hierarchy. Every relationship is one. Status of and status. Dominance, yeah. dominance and submission. So in every relationship, you're either on top or on the bottom. So, all, all whiteness is, and to a certain extent, maleness too, right, is a guarantee that no matter how low you are in society or in the economy, you're still above black people. You're still above your wife and kids. You still are the king of a little kingdom of your own. And that's like, that's in your interests. I mean, that's not, they're not wrong about that being in their interests. It's true. Um, so, but just going back to the climate uh, topic here for a bit. So I think one of the developments, you know, there have been a number of recent developments in terms of bringing the costs of renewable energy, particularly solar down. Um, and China has really doubled, you know, doubled down on a lot of manufacture of that and 
trying to deploy it. Um, is that, you know, I have those, do you think that those developments might move towards some more positive outcomes for environmental policy? Well, I mean, yes, yes. I think what we're going to see is China responding somewhat rationally to economic incentives, which just means, I mean, everybody looks at sort of like, what's China's latest proclamation? And we judge them by that. But if you look over the last 10 or 15 or 20, 30 years, their level of ambition on clean energy and on climate just keeps going up and up and up. It's always, it's never as fast as people want, but it's only moving in one direction. And that's because all the prices for clean energy are moving in one direction. And it's suddenly become, you know, whoever gets there first in terms of the materials and the manufacturing of these components of a clean energy future is going to economically benefit. So China's, you know, racing. I mean, this whole this whole thing in the conservative circles are like, China's not doing anything. Why should we? It's so dumb. China is investing trillions of dollars to try to capture these markets, these markets yeah. in solar panels and wind turbines and everything. Like China's going as fast as it thinks it can, literally, and while still maintaining social stability. That's it's racing. It's yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and to understand that this is a it, this is infrastructure manufacturing supply chain. Like again, that's their supposed obsession with that now. Uh, but reality is, if you ca- if you actually care about supply chain issues then you need to be, you know, militating for massive investments in green energy. Yes, which is what Democrats are trying to fucking do <laughs> with their with the Build Back Better bill as we speak. Like, there are literally, literally provisions in that bill specifically designed to stand up domestic um, supply chains for, for EVs and, and turbines and uh, solar panels. And it's going to dump billions of dollars in there. And then someday those... Those facilities are going to benefit red states, and there are going to be red governors taking credit for them. You'll see that in a few years. Yeah, well, and I mean, ultimately, it's possible that some right-wing billionaire might find the light might finally go off in his head. Oh, I can make a fuck ton of money uh, off of green energy because, and in fact, there was somebody, uh, Boone Pickens, uh, who had in, yeah. invested lots and lots of money in wind and natural gas. Uh, but then he died, and nobody kind of stepped into that space uh, after after he was deceased. Or if you're a right-winger, you can take some comfort in the fact that it seems to be in America, if you become a billionaire, you become a dickhead right-winger sort of automatically, which is what happened to Elon Musk, who came <laughs> in, you know, who came in talking about saving humanity from uh, climate change, and now has become a fucking deficit scold. So... <laughs> Don't worry, right wingers. Like money brings people in your direction. I mean, I strongly believe that someone can't be a billionaire without being some sort of asshole. So, but you know, that's structurally in order to amass billions of dollars, I don't think that it's possible to do that with while being a completely ethical and uh, moral person. It's just not. It's a, real, it's a real chicken and egg question. They seem to both that's like. True. They get grosser, the richer they get, and the richer <laughs> yeah. they get, the more it makes yeah. them gross. It's yeah. you know yeah. where it starts. All right. Well, we we this has been a great discussion. I'm gonna um we're gonna open it up in just a little bit here to audience questions. If anybody um has a question, feel free to use the uh, raise your hand option as we uh, get toward the end here. Um, so I'm just gonna go back uh, and I'll I'll put a link in the show uh, notes to the piece that. 
Um, and I, I mentioned it earlier on Twitter, but I'll mention it again after we're done here. Uh, so David wrote a, a piece in 2017 about Donald Trump and tribal epistemology and uh, just kind of closing the loop a little bit on some of what you were saying that in this essay, I'm, I'm curious what you think of it now that you were talking about the problem of disinformation to some degree at the time you were talking about has to be uh, solved on the demand side. And but but you did say, and I'll quote from you, uh, and because I'm, I'm sure you don't have it memorized. You said, "If it is solved, it will not be, in my view, on the demand side." Um, you said, but rather to do it to make to change the incentives of disinformation. Like, what do you what do you mean by changing the or changing the incentives to produce disinformation? What does that mean? Well, you know, just to put it in the most basic possible terms you should feel like it is a risk to lie about something <laughs> in public. You should feel like if you are exposed as lying in public, whether you're in the media, whether you're a politician or whatever, you will receive disapprobation for that, social disapprobation. Your reputation will be hurt. It will affect your subsequent life opportunities. It feels really dumb and simple to say that, but we've somehow constructed a system now where there is zero downside for lying. There's literally nothing that happens to you. Your lie might not get believed, you know, it might not work, but you don't ever suffer for trying. Like, so you can just, I mean, this is what sort of Trump demonstrates. Just make up one thing after another. Some of them will hit, some of them won't, but why not just keep trying? So, and that's like, you can do some of that, with economic incentives, you can do some of that, I think, with government regulation. But ultimately, that kind of has to be like a social thing. Like you need for you need to just restore respect for truth as a social norm, as a as a shared social baseline. And so, how like, do you do that, though? If I know, I was working. I was working. You might ask. I mean, well, I, I will quote from your last, <laughs> the headline and the last headline, subheadline in your piece. Your headline was, the answer is, haha, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I don't know the answer. I mean, if you, if, if you want my sort of gloomy outlook, I try to think about is there historical precedent for a culture, a society or culture that has become this cleaved in two? With one side against another, inhabiting different realities, wanting different, you know, having different visions of the good and of a good society and just having different beliefs about what is real and what isn't like what exists and what doesn't healing itself in some way other than collapse and violence. That's a very like, good I question. I don't even know of a, I don't even, I couldn't even, never mind like an unlikely answer. I don't even have a candidate answer at all. I don't even know what it would look like. I don't know yeah. how you would go about doing that. It looks very gloomy to me, especially in light of social media, et cetera, et cetera. Because like if you had your hand on, like I said before, if you had your hand on the supply, if you had some effect over what could get into the public square, then at least you'd have a place to focus your efforts, but nobody's got their hand on that anymore. Like everything's flooding in. There's no way to keep anything out. So. Yeah, I, I do think there is, there's uh, I mean, again, like I said before, I think it has to be a, it has to be a multifaceted approach, right? There's no like silver bullet. 
sadly, if we knew what it was, you know, someone would have done it by now. Um, But uh, what I mean by multifaceted approach, it's like you're saying, I think there are a lot of different factors that a lot of different things that can be done and that, that haven't yet been done or tried, or at least not to, you know, for example, I mean, there are groups that advocate for, you know, um, a tougher regulation by the FCC, for example, in terms of somebody not being able to buy up 500 radio stations and TV stations and et cetera, and broadcast the same message on all of them. Um, you know, that, that, that's, that's like a pretty big thing that could potentially be done that was, you know, again, it requires the will. It requires somebody to, you know, take, take the lead on and actually doing something like that. And, um, and as far as, as far as on the individual population level, where I, as you said, I, I'm somewhat pessimistic in the sense that I don't think we're going to solve it either in the, you know, we can teach people critical thinking, we can do this, we can do that. We can try to, you know, have, uh, uh, people that are trusted that check facts, et cetera. But it's, we're, I don't think we're going to ever get back to a point where we once were, but I think that on the political uh, side of things, that then what has to happen is that there has to be recognition of the fact that there are these, as you said, like there are people who live in these alternate realities. And maybe the only thing we can realistically do is to keep people who are not living in the real reality out of power as much as humanly possible. I mean, that's, you know. (laughs) Well, you're getting at something, you're getting at the biggest central challenge here, which is in practice, Anything that attempted to restore accuracy or that tried to enforce accuracy would, in practice, mostly be aimed at conservatives. In practice, would mostly be shutting down conservative voices or blocking conservatives, you know, from being on Twitter or whatever. Like, <laughs> conservatives that are doing most of the lying. Right. So, and yeah. no coincidence. So there's no, it's, it's like the fear of being partisan the fear of 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 seeming like you have a uh, you're on one side or the other has paralyzed every institution that could do anything about it to the point of 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 uselessness like you know and and the, and I don't know the way out of that like you just saw you just saw them run the whole scam on Facebook again just like they did on mainstream media you know like browbeating Facebook claiming to be discriminated against demanding to be represented on any sort of council or panel or whatever. And they've absolutely run the scam on Facebook and now are allowed to say whatever the fuck they want on Facebook. And Facebook has put like, you know, like hardcore right wing propagandists on their sort of truth committee or whatever the fuck it was. So it's not going to do it. What, what institution can escape that bind? Yeah. Although, I mean, to be fair to the other social network companies you know facebook from the very beginning was proto-fascist with peter thiel on the board and <laughs> yeah i don't think they had very far to travel but exactly um yeah well i mean no you're right the you know a lot of this is it has to be a, a combination effort and and this is something because the disinformation economy is very distributed it can't be attacked in a head-on fashion and successfully. Um, And I would say that, so uh, before I started Flux, I I worked at the Hill um, doing polling for them. And we, one of the things that we always polled on was Donald Trump's approval rating. And, you know, it was very different from other presidents in that he had this strong floor of support um, that seemed very consistent. Um, But to a large degree, that floor of support 
Uh, we ask people, do you, you know, do you strongly approve, somewhat approve, somewhat disapprove, or strongly disapprove of Trump? And there definitely were a, a substantial number of people who, you know, who strongly approved of Trump. But there also were, for a long time, people who only somewhat approved of him. And those people uh, figuring out what makes them do what they do and what motivates them. Uh, may be the key to overcoming a lot of the social impasses that we have. And that's why I mentioned progressive Christianity. Well, uh, on the one know. hand, yes. And on the other hand, isn't it partially a pandering to those people that has caused the media to to take this approach where we have to prove that we're not partisan? And so, we oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Understanding. No, I, I, yeah. Understanding and understanding them, but not pandering to them. Yes. Good, good point. There. I to come around again, to again and again. Like if you look at the, if you look at the sort of academic research on public opinion and what you find over and over again is that people basically take their cues from elites. They basically take their cues from people they trust that are in leadership positions in what they consider their tribe. And that's sort of one of the most basic features of public opinion. It's one of the most basic features of human thinking which leads me again and again to the conclusion that there's just no way to solve this from outside the conservative movement. Like it's got to reform itself from within yeah. somehow because it's, it's completely sealed everyone else out. Like what else can anybody do? No one else is yeah. trusted inside it. And like, when will that happen? And what reason would they have to reform their, their fucking winning? Like it's, it's working. So yeah. like, well, why would they change what they're doing? No, that's a great point. And, uh, but ultimately, they are damaging uh, the things that they suppose that they're trying to protect. So, like, for instance, if you look at belief in Christianity in the United States, it's gone down um, as it, uh, you know, right wing Christianity came to the fore in the Republican Party. Uh, belief in the Bible has gone down. And even like Orthodox Judaism uh, has is losing members now um, compared to, you know, more reform or conservative um, or actually conservatives lost as well. Um, reform is the only type of Judaism that's growing in. Um, and that's also true with regard to Christianity is that there are a lot of people out there. Um, these, you know, fundamentalist right wing Christianity sects, they're losing members as well. So like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Southern Baptists, um, they're all losing members in Western countries. And so I think that understanding that that's why I said understanding what motivates me and, and then trying to have the people who are concerned rather than leaving and becoming Democrats just try to stay and fight for reason within their own party. And that's a hard ask. I understand. <laughs> it is. I mean, if you look at the dynamics of like fundamentalist movements or, or, or fascist movements, they all have a kind of arc, right? They all start sort of some with a broad appeal, usually as a backlash against some regime or elite or some bloated whatever. And then they, it's just the mentality. They, they have to, get more and more extreme, build clearer and clearer walls around them, and they shrink, right? I mean, this this is what happens. They shrink and get more extreme and shrink and get more extreme and then end up imploding and bringing some substantial chunk of society down with them. Like, that's that's what you – that's sort of the arc I think you would expect this to have is more and more people get – shut out you know like you see like liz cheney what happened to liz cheney like more and more people will get sort of 
declared apostates and booted until the thing shrinks down until it can't really. But that will be an ugly, ugly, ugly process. And I don't maybe you could reverse it. Maybe like Republicans of goodwill could like throw themselves on the tracks and try to stop that process from happening. But I don't have a lot of hope. I mean, I really still always I often come back still to the fact that while you can't necessarily get people to uh, think critically, uh, I think that it's more achievable to get people to to um, work uh, in like, you know, deep canvassing. Um, have you heard mm-hmm. of that? It's so, mm-hmm. it's, you know, where you go and you talk to people not about a specific issue or a specific candidate or a specific policy, but you uh, you try to reframe their thinking um, about, you know, various things. For example, I know of, a, and they, this has been empirically studied, and it seems to work. Um, so it's something that, unfortunately, I don't think is employed as often as, you know, because a political campaign isn't going to, you know, they're going to go and talk about their candidate. A political party typically is not going to engage in that sort of thing either uh, because they, they, they want their candidates to win. They want to, et cetera, you know, so, or to promote their policies or whatever the case may be, or their brand is, you know, this is what Democrats stand for. This is what Republicans stand for. And uh, so I think things like that show a lot of promise. Um, it's just a matter of um, them being employed more. Well, and, and, and think about it. Like when you leave that house, like I believe that, this is what I mean by sort of high touch, like <laughs> intensive interaction or, or um, intervention. Like I believe if you can get in the house with people and talk and talk with them over time and establish a human connection, you can invoke different frames. You can get them to think about things in different way. But then, exactly. you, leave, but then you leave the house and you're gone and Fox is still there. And Fox is there all the time, 24 hours a day, day and night, leading them back the other direction. Like – so we just can't, like, we can't go deep canvas everybody. <laughs> we've got, you know, like, a, we've got to get a voice of reason inside the house that, stay, that stays there. We have to, you have to work all the different sides. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, could, Matt, do we want to do questions? Let's do. Uh... Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. We're going to open it up to the audience here um, real so quick. Folks, so if you haven't used spaces before, you have to request. Yeah. Uh, to okay. And actually, it looks like we have here. a request here. Yeah. So, here. Um, I mentioned this at the beginning, but if you weren't there at the beginning, um, this is a recorded Twitter space. So uh, you may, if you don't want your uh, voice to be recorded, then you may not want to ask your question. But I did want to disclose that to everybody. But um, Henry, elsewhere, uh, real quick, um, I have added you as a as a speaker. Um, go ahead. Uh, hey, how's it going? Uh, I'm curious. Have you seen? I believe it was in China. This kind of like might actually be the carbon capture technology we're looking for. I just want to know if you'd seen it and if you had any thoughts on it. I heard, you know, like there's a bunch of VCs that are super stoked on it because they're like, oh, we only need like a 25 by 25 mile area with these carbon capture plants set up and they basically turn it into fertilizer. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but kind of interesting. If it works, I'm, yeah, I'm not. I can say a few things. I'm not. I don't know what specific technology you're talking about, but this is a super active area of research, and there are a bunch of different interesting directions people are pursuing. There's there's mineralization, which might have, which might be what you're talking about, where you where you absorb the carbon into minerals, which basically render it stable, and then just 
throw them down on the ocean floor or bury them or mix them in with fertilizer because they're a good uh, fertilizer. There's a bunch of different carbon capture machines. All, all I would say is that carbon capture is going to be a, a marginal contributor. Even if, even if you take the sort of International Energy Agency as, as gospel, it predicts a lot of carbon capture, but still carbon capture is going to be dwarfed by solar and wind and batteries and all the normal stuff. So I, I feel like there's like the tech community and the VC community have gotten themselves sort of geeked up in kind of a Star Trek way about this because they love the idea of like advanced super technology that no one's invented yet and can like, you know, magically solve things. But the, the fact is like, we have the stuff we mostly need and it's mostly political and social resistance that's stopping it. And it would be nice if some of those tech and VC people like got in the arena <laughs> and advocated for policies that got like the first 80% of reductions done before we start worrying about these technologies we need to do the last 20%. That's what I would say generally about carbon capture. Okay. Um, all right. Thanks for that. Um, all right. Nelson looks like he got his, uh, his internet connection uh, resolved. So go ahead, Nelson. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, oh, so we, we were talking earlier about um, one, one way for people to become more interested in the truth or more interested in the left and its policies is for the truth to help them, for the left and its policies to help them, right? And it seems to me that there's a lot of things like the Green New Deal, et cetera, that have the potential to like directly aid people in their lives. But I think a problem is taking credit for it, right? If, if it is not reported on as actually helping the people's lives or if it's, um, you know, if, if the effects are downplayed or accredited to Republicans, for instance, um, then it seems to me that these that the you will not get the desired effect of people becoming invested in in the truth or progressive policies right so i guess i was wondering if you had any thoughts on how to supposing that we do succeed in improving people's lives getting credit for that <laughs> and using that to yeah move progressive policies forward further right um it seems like can we get more progressive media can we yank the current media like give more credit where it's due like what do we do yeah, that's a, a fantastic question, which I could go on about at length, but I will try to I'll try to be concise. First, first, I would just say, like, didn't a poll just come out not very long ago that a substantial number of people who got the uh, child care tax credit checks think they came from Trump? Something like like 30 ish, 40 ish percent of people in the country. So you're you're right that there is no. This this sort of naive version of this notion that Dems have that like, oh, if we change material circumstances in a positive way, it will redound to our political benefit. That is naive because as you are sort of indicating here, even people's experience of their direct own lives and circumstances is mediated in some sense. Like they don't bring meaning to these things inherently. They 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 find out from the voices and media around them what these things mean, what's the context for them, like who's responsible for them, all these kind of questions. So there's nothing unmediated. You can't just change material circumstances and expect that to do the political work for you. I think Obama, Obama found that out. He lowered most people's taxes, and yet to this day, most people believe 
he raised their taxes. So, so I would say two things. One is when you think about interventions that can improve people's material circumstances, think not only in economic terms, like, like Obama did, think in social terms. What is a change in their circumstances that's so big and obvious that they can't miss it? You know what I mean? Like it's got to, and, and, and Trump grasped this in his little lizard brain, which is why he held up the checks until he could sign them. Do you guys remember that? He didn't send out relief checks until he could sign them. But, but yeah. he got that. So you need to do things, one, that are, uh, big and dumb and clear and unambiguous enough that they're easy to that that if you do talk about them you can cut through the the fog a little bit and make and just make it clear you know and things I think like like EV tax credits you know like if we're going to give people three thousand five hundred bucks back on the purchase of an EV that thirty five hundred dollar check should come with like Joe Biden's smiling face on it saying thanks to the Build Back Better Act, here is your $3,500, that kind of thing. Like, Dems need to think more crudely, almost, about about uh, public policy and quit this technocratic fiddling with tax, you know, it's a tax write-offs and tax deductions and capped, tested tax benefits, all this shit. No one knows, no one ever finds out about any of that stuff, even if it does help. So do some big, dumb things is is step number one and then step number two is just talking about it a lot and that is, involves <laughs> two things one some message discipline on the left which how do you do that i don't know two it involves what is the the information infrastructure that gets those messages to the ears and eyes of voters and that is the biggest question in my mind facing the left today is that they don't have one of those right you have a right-wing media dedicated 24 hours a day all year long to making them look like shit no matter what they do and then you have a mainstream media who as we were discussing earlier views its role as quote-unquote adversarial <clears throat> you know hold people accountable which in their translation means just writing negative stories over and over and over again so when you have a democrat in office the entire media landscape is dedicated to writing negative stories about them and making them look bad. And that's why, you know, that explains so much of what we see around us now. So, like, what is the left's machine to push back against that? Is it a cable channel? Is it a radio station? Should we send, like, hip-looking young people out on TikTok to do, like, I, I'm half-joking, but I saw, like, handsome young man on TikTok the other day with an incredibly articulate little presentation about zoning, about upzoning and its climate benefits. I was like, shit, yes. Like if that's like, if they're out there watching TikTok, let's send some people onto TikTok. I don't care where it is, but like Dems have got to stop relying on the mainstream media to carry their messages to voters. It just doesn't work. It's a game of telephone, yeah. but that never reaches the voters. So I wish I had a better answer on the latter half of that question because it is everything. That's everything, how to build that machine. But I don't yeah. really know. Well, well I think uh, – no, I, I, that's a great point, David. And uh, that's actually one of the things that we're trying to do with Flux is to, A, get people on the political left aware that this needs to happen and then, B, you know, build it up to whatever degree that we can. And the reality is that it, it – doesn't it shouldn't be 
one thing. Like there's this right pro yeah. uh, progressive Absolutely. philanthropy has this obsession with, well, we need to have only just one thing that's just this massive thing. And the reality is that's not what you're up against and that's not what you should do. Yeah. Uh, Guerrilla warfare that's out on the streets, right? Corner to corner on all in all the places. Yeah. You need to be helping people get their help you get the word out. Um, and, and that's, you know, progressive philanthropy. There's, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, yeah, so. I was going to say it's it's if I had to trace the problem to one factor above all, it's our shitty billionaires. Uh, they like right wing billionaires are legendarily patient with their capital and 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 generous, and will just like if you want to get on that gravy train, you can and live on it for the rest of your life, just doing nothing but being a hack, going out on TV and saying. The message over and over and over and over or writing it over and over and over again. And like the left billionaires are terrible, terrible. Yeah. They do these one off campaigns. They do these, you know, deliverables well, or, and measurables. Or they make, yeah. Or they make for profit investments in media. I mean, like if you look at yes. so many, you know, left of center media outlets in the United States, they're for profit. And it like. That makes no sense at all if you actually believe in your ideas. Uh, you need to you, – you can't put put pressure on them to be uh, commercially viable. That's just – And this is – and this is a good way of framing this that I that I ask people a lot of times. So, like, there's this the, – the public has this mistaken belief that the federal budget is like your kitchen table budget, right? Like, sort of, this is, this is longstanding. Oh, it's a huge problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a huge problem, and it's been a problem forever because it really makes the public fundamentally misunderstand what it means, what the federal government does, like what the federal government is for. It's a very terrible misunderstanding that hurts progressive policy. But anytime you bring that up, and I've brought it up to numerous Democratic politicians and sort of like pollsters and advisors and whatever. And they all say the same thing, which is, oh, well, that's very old and deeply rooted. And we're in the middle of a campaign and we don't have time to sort of like, we don't have time to re-educate people about the basics like that. We just have to work around their misunderstanding. We have to do the best we can do in light of their misunderstanding. And that's true on a bunch of different issues. And so then I come to the question, whose job is it <laughs> to change the public's view about that like that and many other things but just choose that like whose fucking job is that is it think tanks is it some kind of media is it some kind of paid pr i don't know what it is but like it's who... certainly not going to happen by itself yeah uh, it's not going to happen by itself and the right the right has numerous organs devoted full-time to convincing people that government sucks and it can't do anything right who does yeah. the left have devoted to convincing people that government can work and that it's responsible for most of what the good things we have in our life in America and et cetera, et cetera. Like who's out there educating them on basic true facts about the world and, and no one can give me an answer. Yeah. That's a subject, you know, we try to explore um, a lot at flux. So uh, for people who are not following us uh, on Twitter, I invite you to do that. And uh, flux.community is our website address as well. And uh, yeah, right now we don't have anybody raising their hand. Oh, we actually we do. We have a profile name here. Uh, so go ahead and you can, you can take your turn. Uh, unmute yourself. Hi, this is actually Diana. Thank you. I just want to say thank you. Your 
conversation here has been awesome and I really appreciate learning so much from you guys. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to be one of those people that is having those one-on-ones with people in my community a little bit. I have an EV and I know it's not perfect for the environment, of course, but it's progress. However, from my neighbors, I've had comments I really didn't expect. Uh, things like, hey, it'll take too much for the grid to handle, and we can't have everybody driving an EV. And comments like um, the debate about the post-use pollution of the vehicle and the battery. And then they go to, I say, well, you know, it's better than the pollution. So then they turn around and talk about the mining process for the, the battery. And it seems like I just can't win. <laughs> So, you know, I'm just wondering, somehow they win the argument. I don't know where to go with it. And I was wondering if people are hearing that. And it's been the same, you know, different people, but it's always the same exact lines. Are they getting this from somebody or are they all coming up with yeah. it? <laughs> that's the thing. They're all getting it from the same. That's why they all sound the same is because they're all getting it from the same places. All these same arguments. Like I can mark as someone who, you know, is is uh let's say two online extremely online and, and and involved in these particular subjects i can sort of tell when a new talking point goes out <laughs> you can like a, a talking point like the grid can't handle all the evs at once like that was nowhere and then all of a sudden it was everywhere like i like i don't know the the mechanism like what alec you know or what think tank guy dreamed it up or, or 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 how it how these things start but like clearly the word went out and i was getting you know randos twitter randos yelling at me using almost identical language one one to the next so the the answer to are they all getting in the same places yes and like and the other thing is i can tell you from a history of arguing about climate change in very similar ways with very similar people who are getting their information from very similar outlets is that there is no winning. There is no end to it because like they weren't arguing against climate change because they had any genuine spontaneous uh, feelings or thoughts about climate change. They just knew it was a lib thing. They knew and you're supposed to own libs and like people like us, conservatives don't believe that bullshit. And so they would try this argument and you shoot it down and they try that argument and you shoot it down. And then they go back to the first argument and you're like, wait, I shot that down. And then they drift off to some third argument. And eventually you realize, in my case, it took like 10 friggin' years. Eventually you realize this is not a good faith exchange. I mean, <laughs> we are not we are not on a journey together to try to find the truth together. That's not what's happening here. They view their jobs as pissing me off and wasting my time. And, it, it, and you know, like they're not they're, them changing their mind based on evidence is not in the cards. It is not a possible outcome here. And so a lot of times you just have to choose not to engage or disengage. I don't know exactly if there's a rule to tell the difference between what's good faith and what's not. But like a lot of these you're going to run into a lot of this about electric cars now that they're threatened by electric cars. The oil, the coming global growth of electric vehicles is the number one thing that is going to diminish oil demand in the near term and is going to fuck the industry all up. Like they are, they're officially scared now. So you're seeing these anti-EV arguments roll out. And the fact is, yes, if every car converted to EV tomorrow, it would overwhelm the grid. 
Luckily, that's not going to happen, and it's impossible. What's actually going to happen is the grids are going to be getting greener and being bulked up while electrification is happening. They're going to proceed in parallel, and nobody is going to, no grid operator, like there's no forecast for the sale of EVs that has them rising so fast that they overwhelm grids in a way that we can't anticipate and and deal with. So that's just like, you it's know, disingenuous. That's, yeah. It's disingenuous. It's just one of these made up arguments that's made to to waste time. I mean, and it's the same if you hear like, oh, you're just charging off the grid and the grid is cold. So really, you're just emitting just as much elsewhere. Well, like, first of all, no, it's not just as much. Even on a coal intensive grid, an EV is better by 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 pollution in pollution terms. And as I said, we're greening the grid as we speak. Every, you know, the U.S. grid is getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, which means if you buy an EV and you're charging off a grid that's getting cleaner in environmental terms, your EV is getting cleaner every day, right? Like a, an internal combustion engine you buy is as dirty as it is forever. But an EV literally gets cleaner every day as the grid gets cleaner. So it, it, it rises with the grid. So, I mean, there are answers to these things if you go out and look for them. I'm just skeptical about whether the kinds of people you're interacting with are ever going to <laughs> care if you have, you know, if you can shoot down their latest. Yeah, I would, I would, I, I want to underscore that for anyone else listening, because this is a common theme that comes up, not just in talking about climate um, uh, but, you know, every other progressive issue, right, is where people believe that they can argue on the facts and uh, give people statistics and studies and information, you know, that they view as empirically, you know, sound or scientific and that this is going to change their mind. Unfortunately, that's not how human psychology works. That's not how people's political beliefs are formed or how they work typically. And yeah, so there's a great fact I like to share, which is that <clears throat> several studies and surveys now have found the same thing, which is that the, the most hardcore climate deniers, like old school climate's not happening deniers, are the ones who know the most about climate science. They're not dumb. They're mm -hmm. not ignorant. Like that, I think that's really important to understand. They often know more about climate science than your sort of average person off the street who just accepts what the what the scientists tell them, you know what I mean? They learn more about it in order to debunk it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of ignorance. It's all about ideology and motivation. Yep. Yeah, and that's yeah. why you have to parse whether someone is, you know, talking to you in good faith or not. Yeah. And it, is, but, it can and, be hard to do. It's easier in person than online for sure, yeah. I would say. Yeah, so but it, it definitely question, is true. Yeah. It definitely is true that some people are sincere in their question asking. Yes. I mean, yes. As somebody who was... A conservative for most of my life you know that that people i was able to change my mind um so i can say that um yeah. all right well so uh we got um, we're gonna do two more um uh give two people two more chances to speak so um gene um you we tried to bring you in earlier but i don't know if you were hearing us or not so we're going to let you have a chance, um, and then if you're not able to speak, then we'll move to Ken. I, I, actually, okay, I actually hit that by mistake. Sorry. Oh, I'll turn okay. it off now. Thanks. Okay. All right. I'll remove you from the speaker then. Okay. And all right. So, Kent, uh, you can go ahead then. This is the last question here. Okay. Yeah. I um, There's a point here that, uh, you know, I'm 
live in a rural area. I'm a blue-collar infrastructure worker, retired. I worked on dams and all kinds of projects. But anyway, there's a point here where we need to decide, are we going to save the environment and the planet, or are we going to change the minds of the people that are fighting us? And I live here, and you ain't going to change these people's minds until they realize that there's money to be made. And even the small-time farmers. I just sent a link to a couple of you about Sherman County, Oregon. Went for Trump by 52 points. Went from the poorest county in Oregon to one of the richest in less than 20 years by embracing wind energy. And the uh, the, uh, turbines are on uh, farmer's land. And uh, there's one farmer up there that gets $82,500 a year off her wind generators, which provides her money for next season's seed and maybe a new tractor that needs to be replaced, that kind of thing. Dead, dead Trumpers, you know. But uh, there's a point where if what we need to do, like here in Oregon, we can't, I can't put solar panels up. I've got five acres. I can't put solar panels up any more solar panels than I use for electricity. So I can't actually produce electricity and get a wholesale price for it of whatever excess I make. And that would, you know, at least add to the grid. And the people that are fighting this really embrace that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it's just a point where we got to decide, you know, how are we going to do this? I mean, there's a, there's a big black cloud out there that we're charging towards and we're, we're all preaching to the choir and that includes me. And uh, so when I go out and I'm talking to my friends around here, they're telling me, they used to tell me that the Green New Deal wouldn't let them grow their cows. They couldn't make hay. They couldn't uh, drive their trucks to go get their cows. You know, beef was going to be outlawed. You know, I mean, it was just insane. So I, I carry a couple of copies of the Green New Deal in my pickup, and I've got them all highlighted and marked up with all the pertinent things. It's only 14 pages. I'm sure all, everybody here has read it. And uh, I go through it with them and say, look, here's, here's what it says. You know, I mean, there's a lot of good points in here. And then I talk to them about Sherman County. They just put in a large, huge, about a square mile solar farm here. I can see it from my front, uh, front yard. And people went, at first fought it and fought it, and now they're going, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, there is some good things happening out there. It isn't all doom and gloom. Uh, we, stop, we stopped the uh, Pembroke now. Uh, gas pipeline that was supposed to go through Oregon from Malin all the way to Coos, uh, Coos Bay. They've completely abandoned that project. So, and that was just the people here. And you know what? It was all Republicans who stopped it. So, because it was going to go through their land, it was a NIMBY, NIMBY thing, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I know it's, it, it seems really hard and it seems like, uh, uh, you know, the, all of these things are immovable, including us. But there is a way, you know, there is a way to get around this, maybe just at least as part of the, uh, uh, you know, the energy part of it. It's kind of like Tom Sawyer when he talked to everybody. And, you know, we've all read that. When he talked to all of his neighborhood friends to paint uh, his aunt's fence instead of him because it was so much fun. And so, yeah. uh, no, that's that's a that's a great point, Kent. Um, let's uh, give David a chance. Yeah, sure, to not a problem. I just wanted to say there's better. There's some things out there that are happening that are just bad. Yeah. No. Thanks. Thanks for that. Thank well, you. This, uh, 
That's a really great question and a bunch of good points. And, and here's one thing I would say. Um, if you can try to project yourself back to before you heard anything about the Green New Deal and, and empty your mind about it <laughs> and, and think about what was the spirit of the Green New Deal as offered by the people who came up with it. I'm, and I mean in the contemporary context, the sort of contemporary left that came up with it. The whole point and motivation behind it, well, part of the motivation behind it is you know, we got to address climate change. That's the one thing. But the other thing is this transition is going to happen because of economics. And we specifically want to make sure that we don't discard communities, particular communities, or that particular communities don't get ground up in the wheels while we're changing, as has happened during previous um, energy transitions. So specifically, we have all this stuff in here for farmers, like all this stuff in here for agriculture, all this stuff in here to transition and help coal workers and natural gas workers that are left behind. Like the, the one of the whole motivating spirits of the Green New Deal was a rural friendly, working class friendly transition. That was the damn point. Like, and of course, like if you could get out to those rural people and the farmers and the ranchers and get them away from Fox and talk to them for a while and show them what's in it, you could talk them around to that. But the fact is, after the Green New Deal, I, and I wrote about this study, after the Green New Deal was introduced by AOC and her cohort, in the following six months, Fox mentioned the Green New Deal more than all the other networks combined, like twice as much as more as the other three big cable networks combined. Why? because they recognized it had potential, symbolic potential. Like they recognized you could make it into a symbol of something different than previous environmentalism, something more worker-friendly, more justice-oriented than previous transitions. They recognized the threat, and they went right after it to destroy it. They very deliberately mounted a campaign to lie to their listeners about it and tell them it bans beef and bans poison in the well. Yes, like they on purpose killed it. And I come back to the question I come back to over and over again, which I've come back to a bunch in this call. Whose job is it to mount a similarly comprehensive, loud, repetitive, ubiquitous campaign on behalf of the Green New Deal to support it, to 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 lend it positive symbolic and on, yeah, and on non-ideological grounds. Yes. So, like, the left isn't unified to do it. We don't have a machine on Fox or talk radio. Like, so, you know, what AOC does is, like, give a press conference to the friggin' mainstream media and then just is dependent on them to convey it to their listeners, which they don't. So, naturally, now public opinion is against the Green New Deal because one side went after it. And one side didn't support it. And that's true for everything. There's nothing there's nothing that's intrinsically going to appeal to farmers or, pe- or rural people. It's all got to be somehow delivered to them and conveyed to them. And the only people they listen to are Fox and right wing radio who's lying to them actively about it. So all all basically all problems on the left and all problems in, in the climate left too come back to this like. We just don't have any control over the information atmosphere and there's and they can 
box can pollute anything it wants. It can turn those rural people against anything it wants. Right now, just, just as a funny example, Democrats are saying, let's bulk up the IRS enforcement a little bit so that we can make rich people pay the taxes they owe. You would think that would be the most obvious non-controversial you're like who could be against that literally who could be against that and somehow right-wing media has got such a lock on their audience that they've figured out a way to convince these poor people that giving the irs more enforcement power is just going to somehow hurt them even people who don't pay tax because they're so poor now believe they're against irs reform which just goes to show there's nothing so obviously good that Fox can't pollute it. And until well, David, the IRS is the government. The government's bad. So, oh, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and why is that? Because they've spent 40, right. 50 years saying that. Like they've, they've half their messages are already baked in. Like everyone's already pre-convinced. I mean, I remember when the cap and trade bill came out in 2009, you know, and like the pro climate people are like, well, you see, there's these permits and then you trade the permits and then you can trade them in for an auctioned value. And then the right comes in with Fox and says, tax, boom, debate was yeah. over. Bill was dead because they had already, Primed. everybody on their side already knows what a tax is, right? They know exactly how to fight that. They know exactly how to think about it. They know exactly what they're doing with that. Well, and, and they, I'm sorry. They also have the, made the infrastructure. So like yeah. in, in, in real estate, you know, people, the number one rule of real estate, of commercial real estate is location, location, location. But the rule, the number one rule of persuasion is presence, 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 presence. If yes. you are there talking yeah. um, and if, if you're there, just it doesn't you don't even have to have good arguments. Just the fact that you exist and are there and people can see that you're there um, on the cable dial. Like a, a ton of people came to watch Fox News just because they were flipping the TV like they didn't you know, actively seek it out. They didn't, had never even heard of it. Um, and so, you know, just being out there all the time. like and that, And that's something positive that, you know, we can think of as well as we come to the end here that, you know, being out there on the regular is, you know, it, it is persuasive if people encounter, like some people will never change their minds, but other people, if they encounter ideas enough in enough different places from different people, um, eventually they, they can rub off in, in some fashion. And, and that's something that happened in a good way with the fight for uh, same-sex marriage and um, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, there's been a greater acceptance for LGBT rights in existence. Um, so things can, good things can still happen, even in a system in which uh, the deck is stacked. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, the left does have enormous cultural power. The right is not wrong about that. They're not wrong when they freak out that the left owns Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, if everyone on the left decides at once like they seem to about gay marriage then then that will seep through culture right it'll come out through sitcoms you know what i mean like in, in movies and just it becomes ambient in culture if the left really like is gripped by something it can make it ambient in culture and change minds about it the question is just like how do you do that on purpose like how do you herd those cats on purpose yeah. 
and no one knows. Yeah, well, it begins with enough people having the will to do it. Um, so, and that only begins by, you know, conversations like this and, uh, you know, writings like everybody here today that, uh, you know, getting people to understand that this has to be done and we have to move toward a, a more change-oriented politics. Um, so, yeah, I, I really uh, appreciate appreciate you joining us today, David. Um, and just to recap for everybody, um, so the conversation today, uh, this was a recorded Twitter space. So uh, patrons of David's and patrons of Flux, it will be available to you um, uh, after this is over if you weren't able to make it. So I encourage you to subscribe to David's site or to join uh, Flux on Patreon. And um, David, did you want to, did you have any concluding remarks you wanted to say? Uh, no, other than everyone should subscribe to Volts. Oh, and, and your website address is uh, impossible to forget. So go ahead. Is <laughs> volts.wtf. Yeah, can't, you can't get, you can't forget that one. You got, that will be seared into everyone's mind today, hopefully. <laughs> All right, David. Well, uh, thanks for being here, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern time. So thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.